Welcome to episode three of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This show was recorded Saturday, September 16, 2006. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is a combination of some of the best cycling podcasts on the internet. Each show will bring together some of the most famous voices in cycling for a lively discussion of the current cycling news. Welcome to episode three of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss everything in the world of cycling and we bring in cycling podcasters from all over the world to help to discuss each of those topics. This week we've got with us Tim Grawl from the Crooked Cog Network and Podcast. Hi Tim, how are you this morning? Hello there. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us is Carlton Reed and he's from Bike Biz Magazine as well as the Cycling News and Reviews Podcast. Hi Carlton. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is in, in your world. <laughs> That's the problem with an international show, you never know. It, well, it is morning here in the States, it's afternoon in the UK, and there's just three of us on the show this week. Uh, we are all in the midst of getting ready for Interbike, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, and so we had to record this at some strange times to get around everybody's schedule, and unfortunately not everybody could join us. But welcome, Tim and Carlton. Let's get started. The, the first thing that, that I thought that we might talk about today is a telephone conference that you, Carlton, were on recently with Dick Pound, who is in charge of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA. And I know that you've posted the entire telephone conference on your podcast as well as on YouTube, and that's where I listened to it. It was was really interesting. Why don't you give me just a, a short summary on the teleconference itself, on some of the questions and your thoughts about it, and then maybe we could talk about it a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I thought you got a, a, a... Anybody else who listened to it can can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but I thought you got a very, very easy ride from uh, the journalists who were on that uh, teleconference. And there was... I was the only cycle journalist, but there was also people from New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and I'm presuming the, the, the people who were... Uh, asking the questions, well, like chief sports reporters, people of that uh, kind of quality, and they asked some really soft questions. And not that I, I'm going to ask hard questions just to be hardball, but I just thought he ought to be put on the spot a bit more than he he was being. So my question was was second up, and uh, hopefully it was uh, harder than the ones he, he he got subsequently. Anyway, and then I got four questions in. And each one, hopefully, uh, got him to, to say stuff that the other journalists weren't getting him to say. And interestingly, uh, the media reports that, that came out in International Herald Tribune, New York Times, etc., all of which were, were quoting him, were all actually quoting him from the questions I asked. So clearly, what I was asking got him to, to say the things uh, the journalists wanted to hear him say, but strangely, they weren't asking him these questions. You know, I, when I listened to it, my, my feeling was, was as yours, which was that he was getting a lot of softball questions. That, that he, and, and it was interesting because people would, the, the moderator would come on and say, so-and-so from the New York Times, and I'm just using this as, as an example, it's, it's your turn to ask your question. They'd come on, they'd say, hi, Dick, and he'd come back and he'd say, hi, so-and-so, and he'd talk to them as if they were old friends, they were old chums, you know, from high school or something. And so it really seemed like he wasn't expecting to get the hardball questions. And beyond that, I think you're right in that your questions were more hard-hitting, 
And I wonder if that's because, as somebody who's in the cycling world, you just have a lot more specific information at your fingertips, as opposed to some of these general sports reporters who, quite frankly, spend most of their time looking at baseball, football, basketball, tennis, and 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 rarely drill down to the more uh, or the less popular sports like cycling. And so maybe it's just that you have more specific knowledge. Do you, do you think that's possible? I think it was more the case. I'm bolshy, if uh, that word translates. <laughs> I, I'm not afraid to upset people because it. Not that I'm not going to speak to this guy again, but um, I'm not in the, the the same world as the, the the chief sports reporter for the New York Times. I'm probably not going to be socialising with these people. I can ask questions and with, without fear, really, of upsetting any social milieu that may be or may not be going on there. And you're right, it did seem as though this was an old boys club. Just to give a slight bit of background, and this might be totally unfair to, to Wada, but I'm not too sure whether they knew that uh, I was going to be on there. Because uh, I emailed the, the press guy and said, can I join the teleconference, it was, which was hidden away in the, 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 the depths of the Wada um, website. And uh, he came back on, he said, yes, yes, you're on. And then there was a, a certain time where you had to be by your desk, and they would call you back, and then you're part of the conference. And uh, five minutes to, no call. Five minutes past, no call. So I call them, and nobody's available to talk to me. They say, oh, no, it started five minutes ago. You can't get on. So I, I just put the phone down and then tried to ring on my cell phone and get through to this, this American line, which you're not meant to use from overseas. And because they outsource it to a, a company that um, does the teleconferencing, it's not a, a wider in-house thing, I think I just ended up on there when I shouldn't have done. Maybe they wanted me on there, really, and it was just a technical error, which was, was what they said later, why they didn't bring me back. But I also think, just possibly, that uh, they knew who I was, they knew I was going to ask some very awkward questions, and maybe they didn't want me there. So I smuggled myself on, and maybe Dick then found himself answering questions he, he may not otherwise have done. One of the things that I commented on, and I emailed you about this, was that it seems to me that Pound is being a little hypocritical. In, well, you've probably heard that before, but he's being a little hypocritical when it comes to the differences in the Marion Jones case, the American track and field star, and the Floyd Landis case. Marion Jones tested positive a few months ago in her A sample for the use of banned substances, and then her B sample came back, and the B sample was negative. Now, as I understand it, and I think Dick said this in the interview, if a B sample comes back negative, then that's conclusive evidence that there was no doping offense because the two the two samples have to match. So she supposedly should therefore be found not guilty and be able to go about her career in track and field. Interestingly though, WADA is now investigating the lab to find out whether or not their procedures were proper. Now let's contrast that to the Floyd Landis situation. In Floyd's situation, he's got two positives, both the A and the B sample say that he was using testosterone, or, or pardon me, that his testosterone to epitestosterone ratio was out of balance, beyond the, the limit. 
And Floyd and his attorneys have now brought up a legal challenge saying that the lab mishandled his samples, that the chain of custody was incorrect, and basically that their procedures are faulty. WADA is not investigating currently that lab. Do you guys see an inconsistency here, or am I missing something? Well, um, I haven't been keeping too close an eye on this, but just from what you've said and then the things I've been reading on Landis specifically, I mean, it, it does seem like that would be the lab uh, that's the lab that's coming under attack in court would be the first one you jump to to make sure that everything is going correctly. And so it just seems like maybe it isn't a priority as much as it should be to to make sure that the, the lab in Landis's case was doing things correctly, especially if the lawyers are trying to use that case to throw it out. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I sort of understand Pound wanting to make sure that, that there wasn't some mistake in the Jones case, uh, although, you know, I, I think maybe he's just he's trying to find, I don't know, maybe a witch hunt isn't the right, right term. But again, in the Landis case, there's been so many questions about this lab in France. Uh, and remember, they were, the, they were the ones who released, inappropriately, by the way, uh, what they said were results from, from Lance Armstrong. And I, I think it is time for, for WADA to, to investigate that lab and for the UCI to do the same thing and maybe the Tour de France. And, and I said in my show that I felt that if, with all of these questions that are out there, you know, it's, it, it couldn't hurt to investigate and find out whether or not everything is being done according to the rules. And if not, use a different lab. These people are literally destroying careers. Now, I've had lots of emails from people who say that they think that I'm missing part of this story. What they think I'm missing is they feel that this is a whole conspiracy by, quote-unquote, the French against Americans, and that perhaps something improper occurred at the lab simply because they don't like the fact that Americans are winning their sporting event. I said on my show that I don't necessarily buy into any of that, you know, yeah, I think that at times the French, they don't agree with us, you know, whether it's on wars or, or, or whatever it's on. And certainly people say, oh, you know, I, I went to France on vacation and they didn't treat me nicely. But is that really, do you think that's really transferring into people's professional lives, scientists who are testing drug samples? What do you guys think about that? Carlton, I'm going to start with you because you're, you know, you're, right across that channel from them. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think that that this is a whole French conspiracy against Americans? Do you think that's what's going on here? I don't. I mean, the French are famously abrasive, if, uh, if that's a, a, a diplomatic way of putting it. But in this this case, I mean, as, as Dick Pound said, and as, as, yes, sure, we need an investigation, maybe, to find out if, if all the protocols are being followed. But as he said, the people in the lab don't know whose urine it is. You know, they, all they get is a barcode, so they can't really be anti-American unless somehow there's a there's a, a stars and stripes on that bar. But didn't uh, I see a story? Wasn't there a story someplace that said that that actually they might have known that that was Floyd's sample? This is what we need to find out. Yeah, you know, because what what uh, Pat McQuaid, who's the president of the UCI, said was we had to leak 
the, the fact that there was a, a high-profile doping case at the Tour de France because we were afraid that the lab would leak the information. Now, if Pat McQuaid says that, well, how would the lab know it's high-profile if they didn't have um, those barcode figures uh, double-tracked against uh, the race numbers? Now, what Dick Pound said was he thinks Pat McQuaid got that wrong. Um, maybe, maybe not. We need to find out. We need, we need all these questions answered. And one of the soft questions that asked by one of the journalists uh, was uh, of, of Dick Pound was, well, shouldn't the, the, the labs defend themselves? And Dick Pound said, yes, they should. Well, okay, let's hear their defense. Let, let's, let's get these guys to tell us how they um, know or do not know about all these figures, because there's clearly one or more individuals in that particular lab who is very close to L'Equipe, which uh, is owned by ASO. ASO owns the Tour de France. The newspaper and the Tour de France are linked at the hip, and there's a lab technician, one or more lab technicians, who tells L'Equipe stuff that happens in that lab, as happened with the, the Lance Armstrong case last year. So that alone ought to be grounds for WADA to uh, A, investigate, and, uh, and B, following uh, an investigation, if it was found that there were irregularities of, of how that lab was getting information out there, they ought to sanction that lab. And that's one of the questions I put to Pound. And he just said, no, no, we won't sanction that lab because they're not leaking. Like, well, yes, they are. And, and actually, he said that WADA and the UCI had, quote, vociferously defended that lab, didn't he? They vociferously defended certain parts of the lab. They didn't defend the lab against all accusations. There's so many parts of uh, that interview, I was biting my fist because... It, the technicalities of our, you're, you're all on, on hold, in effect. And the operator just says, right, number, whatever, you now, give your question. And if you're quick, you can get a second response in. But it's not like a normal press conference where you can jump in with a secondary question if somebody says something that's clearly not true. In a teleconference, in the way they've, they've got it set up, you really can't do that. Once he said something that's untrue, unless you're the one asking that question, Another journalist can't jump in and trip him up. So he, Pound, was saying things, which I, just, I couldn't believe he was saying it. It's, it's well documented. Uh, some of the things he was saying were just not true. And because you can't physically jump in, we, we, I certainly couldn't uh, challenge a lot of his. I tried to challenge as much as I could, but you, you're only really going to get four questions in, in maximum, before they just shut you down. So what he said well, was Carlton. just crazy. Wow. Carlton, why do you think uh, Dick Pound is uh, defending this lab so much when it's, there's obviously problems with it? It's the whole system. I mean, he's, he's not defending a lab. He's defending WADA. And he's defending WADA because he's the, 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 the chief of WADA. It's a WADA-sanctioned lab. So if the lab is in, in question, WADA is in question. And uh, this is almost the whole point, exactly. You know, if we if we can't trust the labs, how can we trust the results from those labs? Why should it only be the riders that we mistrust? In, in life, you don't just have one set of individuals and they're always at fault. Sometimes other people make mistakes. Sometimes other people 
uh, make deliberate mistakes. Now, I think in this particular case, there, there's a, a fair body of evidence now uh, becoming apparent that it might not be a French conspiracy, it might just be a French mistake. These these tests that they, they do on, on urine and on blood for EPO, they are not cut and dried. They are not 100%. They're indicative. So there's a lot of interpretation goes on. It's not a litmus test. It's not a pregnancy test where you get a, a blue or a red and he doped and he didn't dope. It, it's, it's, it's much, much uh, grayer than that. And these are the things that never come out. And this is why there are adjudication panels to look into these things. Expert panels then look at the findings from the labs. So Floyd Landis, if he gets off, say, next week or the week after, that'll be why, because there's been a set of experts uh, will either okay or dispute the findings from, from, the, from the French lab. So what do you think about this, Tim? Uh, if somebody came to you and said, Ah, this is all just the, you know the the darn French. That's why we call them freedom fries now. We don't call them French fries. Do, do you think that 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 that's possible? Do you think that's the, what could be going on here, or are you sort of of the same mind that it sounds like Carlton and I are, which is just if there was an error, it was a mistake. It wasn't some cultural bias. Well, like we spoke before the show, um, every culture has their well idiots and the people that are normal. And so, I mean, yes, it could be somebody in that lab that just doesn't like the United States. But if the lab was sitting over here, there could be somebody in there that didn't like the French. So I think that that doesn't have as much to do with it. And I just think that, uh, well, one, I'm learning a lot more just this year on everything that's going on and that, um, like Carlton just said, it's not cut and dry things. And it just makes me wonder... Why? What's the big deal about just going in and making sure things are done correctly? If things are getting leaked and um, and there's there's no surety that things are being done correctly, whether it's a French lab or not, um, they need to be sanctioned to see what's going on there and to make sure that uh, again these writers' lives aren't being thrown into chaos uh, because of mistakes or biases or anything like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and, and, and like I said before, I do think that the lab needs to be investigated, and quite frankly, as a, as a business person, somebody who runs a business, you know, if, if, if I'm having a problem with a product that I'm manufacturing, the first thing I'm going to do is look into my procedures. How am I manufacturing that product? What Are the parts I'm using um, built to my specifications? Uh, are my vendors supplying me the exact pieces that I'm supposed to have? Are my guys welding things properly? I'm, I'm going to look at, you know, are we wiring things right? You know what? That's really no different than the position that Dick Pound is in. The position he's in, he's in charge of a business. Now, whether it makes money or not, he's he's got to make sure it's being run properly. And the extension of that is he needs to make sure his vendors, the labs, are doing their jobs properly. And at a certain point, enough customers, if you will, contact WADA and say, we don't think your product is working properly. And at some point, a good businessman, a good executive, says, you know what? I don't know whether that's true or not, but I need to know to make sure that I'm doing my job properly, and therefore I need to look into this situation. So I think that it is incumbent upon Dick Pound and upon WADA and the UCI to look 
more closely at these labs and to say, yes, they're doing the job properly, or, oops, there's a problem here. And quite frankly, I tend to respect the people in business and in life who are honest enough to say, yeah, I made a mistake and I'm fixing it and I'm sorry for the mistake and I'm going to make restitution for whatever that mistake has cost. In this case, it would be restoring the reputation of, of people who possibly may have been caught in, in, in these mistakes. But I don't see him doing that. Instead, I see him sweeping it under the rug and saying, hey, there's nothing wrong here. Let's move on. It's got to be the cyclist. Sure, I think that there are cyclists. Pardon me. I, nah, I think that there are cyclists who are doping. You know, Frankie Andreu came out earlier this week and said, yeah, I, I doped in the run-up to the 99 Tour de France. So cyclists have admitted it. Cyclists have been, have been caught at it. Other athletes have too. So yes, there are cyclists who are doing it. But at the same time, I really think that we, we need to investigate and find out whether or not these labs are doing everything properly. And not doing that, to me, says that Dick Pound isn't doing his job properly. And that's just, right, and I, that's just my opinion. I think that's where shows like this podcast and other things are starting to make a difference because that mentality of where big business and can sweep things under the rug, it doesn't work so much anymore. You've seen uh, major fallouts from uh, the NBC debacle a couple years ago with uh, the election and everything like that. The consumers are having more of a voice. So I think if we flex that voice a little bit and uh, really get the word out that we want something to be done about this. I think that's what will make the difference in the long run is realizing that they can no longer just um, use the main media streams and everybody else will ignore it and they can shut everybody's eyes. Uh, now they're, they're going to start having to answering to the people that are there um, and consumers. You see that, Carlton? It takes us right back to your petition. Yeah, I mean, my, my petition was... Uh, looking, at, wasn't it was never on is Landis uh, guilty or not guilty. I'm an agnostic on that. It um, let's look at the science, let's look at the lab, and let's look at Dick Pound. Um, Wada did know that I was in um, the author of that petition because the, the press officer said so, um, and I have no apologies to to make to Dick. I I think Wada would be a much better organisation uh, if he wasn't uh, in charge of it. And I, I, a sneaking suspicion that an awful lot of WADA people think the same. He brings that organization into distribute uh, almost on a, on a weekly basis. Um, one of the very rich things he said uh, in the interview was that the, the very famous, um, it's a, a guy from 19th century, or 18th century England, Blackstone, uh, a lawyer, who said that uh, it's better for uh, 10 guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to, to be unjustly found guilty and Wada chief came out with that and I'm thinking well that is just not his approach at all he goes for the dealer as soon as somebody's had uh, a single test he went for Marion Jones he went for Catlin who of course did eventually admit to it but he also went for, for Floyd um, and he comes out in public in newspapers um, and, and says the most incredible things about athletes who haven't had the chance to put their side of the story into due process. And that can't be right for the, the, the top, top person 
at a body which is trying to stamp out drugs. I'm very impressed with uh, uh, USADA, which is the US Anti-Doping Authority. When you go on their website or when you just look at their press comments about any doping case, you can't find anything. They say no comment. And that's, that's the right thing to do. You can't comment until an expert body has reviewed all the evidence and has found that athlete to have doped. Until that point, you are just going on a lab say-so, which might have made a mistake. You've got to get the experts in to, to find out what's actually happened. So USADA's point of view is correct. No comment. Dick Pound, no comment is just it's not in his vocabulary. <laughs> the Nazi frogman um, quote, which you've picked up on in the emails, that's not me saying he's a Nazi frogman. He wrote in the Ottawa Citizen um, two weeks after the Tour de France. He said... Uh, his quote was that, uh, so what happened with uh, Landison? Was it a bunch of Nazi frogmen who injected him against his will? And his whole article was all about how guilty, 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 guilty. And it's like, you can't say these things. You really don't know the answer until the expert body has adjudicated. And he's done this in numerous examples. He did it with Marion Jones. And have you heard him apologize to Marion Jones? No, he's just said, oh. Maybe the lab got it wrong. Let's go and investigate that lab. I want that result to be a positive. And this is just not the guy who can lead an organization which has got to have the trust of athletes. Well, I think on that, I think we, 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 are, we all agree. I think we've probably beaten that one to a pulp. So I want to move on to something a little bit lighter, well, possibly lighter. And, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's you, uh, you pesky Brits, Carlton. You're, you're bringing up all these, these interesting uh, uh, laws and regulations and now they want you to make sure that you have a bell on your handlebars and if you don't you could face up to but i think it's a 2500 pound fine and of course this is just a proposed regulation at the moment but it's it's looking pretty strong from what i've read and it, i guess the whole point behind this is they want to try to protect pedestrians and and i don't know personally i, I mentioned this on my show when I see a pedestrian go to step off a curb and, you know, uh, there's a potential for a conflict, a really loud yell of, yo, tends to work and they tend to stop in their tracks and, and there's, we've, we've avoided an accident. At least here, bicycle bells, you know, somebody ringing one a couple of times usually is sort of a friendly, hi, and it's usually not a warning. How does, how's it, this thing going to work in, in the UK and do you think it's something that's going to pass? Well, I'm afraid to burst your bubble, but no, it's just a media hype. It, it's not going to happen. It's, um, I did a, a story in my, my trade magazine three weeks ago on this, and then about a week ago, the media picks up on it and uh, decide it's a huge story, because it's a joke. Um, it, you know what I say for you to say the nanny state? You understand that, yes? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the, the Labour Party across here gets labelled with they're a nanny state. They try and bring in all these crazy laws. So the, the, the newspapers, whenever they find anything which they consider to be very funny and crazy, they'll just they'll blur it up out of all proportion in order to hit the Labour government with. It's one of those. It's, uh, there's a whole bunch of standards that have come from Europe which have to be updated for bicycles. They're called the CEN standards. It's very, very boring, but they're standards that have got to be updated um, on bicycles. And one of the things that, uh, when that comes up, can be, well, should we have uh, bells on bicycles um, and make people use them? 
and it goes out to consultation. Now, the last time it went out to consultation, everybody said, no, don't do it. So the government didn't do it. So if they do it again, everybody will say, no, don't do it. So it, in effect, it won't happen. But it's one of these uh, stories that's more, more uh, heat than light, I'm afraid. So we can talk about it. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, it's, so it's not the pesky Brits, it's the pesky Labour Party. Is that what it is? No, it's just it's the pesky journalist, I'm afraid. They, they pick up on these stories, they run with it without actually going to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And uh, off they go, and they'll do this story, they'll find it very funny, get a couple of quotes from, from crazy people in the street, and then they'll be on to the next crazy story. And it's only if you come to somebody who's actually in the field who'll say, oh, come on, that's not going to happen hasn't happened in the past, it won't happen now because to pump for transport, they don't want it. So whenever somebody doesn't want anything, they say, oh, we put it out to consultation. Because they know nobody wants it. Because who does it go out to consultation to? The bike trade. Is the bike trade going to say, yes, we should do that? No, they're not. So it won't happen. You know, when I, when I read it, one of the things that I read, though, was that, is, is it true that when you buy a bike in Britain that it comes with a bell? Uh, that was the, the last crazy thing to happen, and that's just stuck on your bike, and you go out to the bicycle shop door, take off the poly bag, and put it in the bin. <laughs> and then you, you, are, you are legal, you've had it on the bike at the point of sale, with no obligation whatsoever to actually use it as soon as you're over that threshold of the, of the shop. But what was different there? I mean, that was one of those crazy things that they did. So is there is there any chance at this one, or, or it's absolutely no way? No, they they knew that one would pass because they had to the bike trade had to kind of give the government something. Oh, okay. And so they went, oh, okay, we'll do that. And it, it cost them a few million dollars, but they just absorbed it. Okay. It's just, it is a crazy law, and if you're going to make something compulsory, make something useful compulsory, like lights, you know, a little tinkly bell. Oh, come on, on a on a five thousand dollar downhill behemoth. Do you really need a tinkly bell? Of course you don't. Great. But uh, lights now, you don't need it on, on mountain bikes. Perhaps um, road-going bikes may be compulsory. It comes with a, 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 an attachable light. But bells, no, you don't need bells. Well, it looks like Larry Barker from the Crank Podcast is getting ready to join us. So if you give me a second, I'm going to add him to our conference. Hang on one second. Ah, good evening. Thank you very much. How are you guys uh, tonight? Sorry I missed out on the first part of the conversation. It's all right. We know how traffic in Japan can be. <laughs> um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, the, the recent Dick Pound teleconference. Uh, we've talked about very, very briefly about Landis's allegations about the lab. We've very briefly about Frankie Andrea. We just dismissed the possible regulation in, in the U.K., where everybody's going to have to have a bell on their bicycle, otherwise you're going to get fined 2,500 pounds. So I was just going to move on from, from bells to helmets. And there was a very interesting story that came out this week, and, and I know it was on Crank. And this is the one that said that there was some research done that indicated that if you were wearing a helmet, that you actually might be in more danger in traffic, where the cars actually seem to get closer to those wearing helmets than they do to those who don't. And then the researcher went on and found that if you were wearing a wig so that you looked like a female cyclist, that then they actually stayed a little bit farther away from you. So uh, I'm sure you all saw that story. And Larry, I was wondering what your comments were on it. No, certainly. On, on In regards to that, it's um, 
I have a, I can come from both sides of it, because the one thing that uh, I worry about, well, I'm, I'm all for supporting where he came from and the research he has done, but at the same time, I mean, he, he advocates, you know, the education of drivers, uh, making drivers aware of what we go through as cyclists on the road, but at the same time, um, this is, I believe this is going to be peer-reviewed and it's going to be published in, you know, beyond just uh, what was released in the original um, media release or, or the, uh, yeah, sorry, the media release. But um, the one thing I wonder about is that it was only really done on the scale of one cyclist. I'd like to see it take part or at least him gather the information on a larger scale. You know, why, well, for instance, why hadn't he maybe... If, if he's looking at wearing a wig and conducting that research, certainly it's an interesting angle to look at, but why not just perhaps get a female cyclist to perform that research for you? Um, I have to wonder why he w he did it himself. Maybe, you know, he controlled the situation, the, the uh, variables, whatnot. But uh, I just have to wonder about the, the, I guess, the boundaries in which he took the test within and um, go from there, I think. So a, a wider scale, uh, yeah, certainly, project. certainly, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. But guys, what's what's your experience when you're out there in traffic? I, I talk about it all the time. Where you know, I, literally, because I train in the evenings and I come home, and literally every time I come home, my wife and kids say, "So how many people tried to kill you today?" And 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 I don't know if that's because I'm in Los Angeles, and you know, drivers here aren't very skilled, and they're all on their cell phones and things like that. But I'm wondering what, what, what your experiences are when, when you're out there. Tim, when, when you're out there riding on the, on the street, what are you finding? Are, are cars getting, are drivers getting worse? Are they getting better? What do you see? Well, around here, there's very little cycling on the road. There's very little, there's no such thing as a bike lane. Um, so it's very dangerous and if you're doing anything within the city. So I very rarely ride within the actual city. Um, but I've found that, uh, you, I mean, you kind of get uh, people that uh, don't mind so much and just kind of go around you. And then um, I had a guy that uh, I was I was getting going for a left turn, and he came up behind me and just laid on his horn until I got off the road. And um, so you kind of get you kind of get both. I think it's obviously getting worse as more people get in more of a hurry. Uh, they see bikes as not belonging on the road and just slowing them down, and so that just uh, causes them to get angry and, and try to, you know, do whatever is out there along with cell phones and not paying attention and that sort of thing. So I, I, I honestly think it's getting worse, but um, but I I thought it was interesting the fact that that people may not be as uh, cognizant of staying away from you. If you have a helmet on, I hadn't thought of that, but it kind of makes sense. You know, I, I asked you, Tim, because we, we talked about this in the first show, and, and I, I sort of got Carlton and, and Larry's feelings on, on how safe it is for cyclists out there on the road. Uh, I also hadn't really considered, when I'm driving, do I give somebody who's wearing a helmet uh, more credit for their skill versus somebody who's not wearing a helmet? And I'm guessing that subconsciously we, we might all do that. Um, Carlton, what about you? When you're out there driving, do you do you think you consciously or subconsciously differentiate based on the way somebody's dressed, based on whether they're wearing a helmet, the kind of bike they've got? What do you what, do you think you do that? Well, I would like to think, 
it may not be the case, but I'd like to think that, that if you're a cyclist, you're a better driver. And you are going to be looking out for, for different situations that a, 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 just a normal, a lay person, a, a car driver who's not a cyclist, will not be looking out for. And you may be more spatially aware in a car if you're a cyclist because that's how you ride. You, you, you are unbelievably concentrated when you ride a bike. And that should transfer to, to how you drive a car. And for sure, if I'm out there, I, I will make a, a, a huge point of giving a fair width to any cyclist out there. Um, and that's, to tell the truth, whether they're wearing a helmet, whether they're wearing a blonde wig like this guy was wearing, whether they're a woman, anybody, I will, I will slow down deliberately um, and quite forcefully and give cyclists lots of room because I'm, I'm one myself. I would love to think that other cyclists, when they drive, uh, do the same. I suspect it, it's not the case because when you see uh, parents taking their children to school, they, they'll get out of a car and they'll, they'll walk to school or they'll walk to the shops or whatever and they're paranoid about their children and they'll get very angry if a, a car comes too close to them. But if they get back in their car, are they then suddenly incredibly aware of other children? No. No, they get inside their cars and then it's, it's a different world again. And then they cut children up. Um, it, it, it's very frequently, that's, that's what I've, I've, I've witnessed. So I, I think it, it, it might just be the same uh, with cyclists in cars. I'd like to think not, but I think it might be. Uh, on this particular case, uh, I would also like Larry like to, to, to see maybe his research, because maybe this guy, because he is the only guy testing it, maybe he's riding you know, a metre and a half out from the curb. And that's why the drivers are having to, to come past him maybe sometimes closer. We just don't know. We, we almost need to see the video that he's done to, to peer review that, not just uh, uh, distance from pavement and distance from, from white van or whatever. But what he did find um, certainly tallies with previous research on this. There's a, a, a very well-respected... Um, research body in the UK called the Transport Research Laboratory and about 10 years ago they found exactly the same thing that if you're wearing a helmet drivers will come closer to you. So what's the solution here? Obviously it's not to tell people not mm. to wear a helmet. Uh, is there something that we can learn? Let's, let's assume for a moment that the research is valid, that the procedures he used would be acceptable to review. What's the lesson that we learn here, if any, Larry? What I, I, what I do think it's a complicated one because, you know, this helmet debate is going on for ages, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, you've got people talking about the twist that might happen when you hit the pavement at a low speed, yada, yada, yada. And um, there, there's so many different aspects to what's involved in an accident that this is just one small picture of it, I think, to be honest with you. But in the grander scale, perhaps in the UK... You know, the perception that motorists have against uh, cyclists, I think this might be a larger, a larger portion of that because, to be honest with you, if people were a little more educated and had the experience of being a cyclist, you know, maybe they would uh, behave in a different manner. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of stuck on one, that one, David. I'm sorry at the moment. Tim, what do you think? Is, is there a lesson to be learned here, or is the lesson not even for cyclists to begin with? Is it really just a lesson for motorists? I think the lesson is more for motorists and 
Um, I think it is a subconscious thing that people that don't ride bikes don't really think about, so they just, without uh, even really paying attention, they'll they'll not worry so much about getting close to a cyclist with a helmet because, well, they're more protected. But um, I think that's where the education needs to come in for the general uh, non-cycling public of how how one bikes do belong on the roads and they have just as much rights in most places as uh, cars do and then therefore they need to uh, respect them just just as um, you know when you drive closer to a motorcycle you tend to stay farther away and give them more room because they're a lot more exposed and I think the same thing needs to go for cyclists without that whole road rage aspect of it might actually cost them 15 seconds of their life to uh, go a little slower so um, Yes, if this if these findings are real, if, if we if we know that uh, if it comes out that um, this really um, is is good science, then I would say that uh, the drivers are at fault here because whether you're a woman or wearing a helmet or not, you still need to be given um, enough room and not be put in any more danger um, on on a bike as uh, you would be in a car. You know, if, if, if I remember right, I think, Larry, you told me that you're going to be interviewing the gentleman who did this research for, for a show coming up. And I, I think a question that, that I'd like to, to ask this gentleman is, what was the purpose here? And what lesson does he take from the research that he did? So you know, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing that on a, on a, new, you know, on a future version of your, of your podcast, because I, I want to know what his, what his point was. What, what exactly was the purpose of doing the research? It's interesting. It's fun to talk about, but is it to is it intended to show that we need to have more bike lanes? Uh, is it intended to show that we need to have more motorist education? I'd really like to know where he's coming from. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult thing, though. I think David, it's um, you know, you you look at uh, many different things that we do in life, and you know, I I hate to compare the two, but. I look at something like, uh, you know, I'm hev pretty heavily involved in something like ice hockey. And through different countries, you have different perceptions. And if I'm a motorist in a car and I see someone who is wearing extra protection, you know, you, you might not think of them as being such perhaps a frail being, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to perhaps someone who is just cycling along. And I've had plenty of friends who have given me this advice in the past. You know, you're commuting in London. And one thing that I've been told that some people have tried tried out doing, and I, I am uh, interested to approach Dr. Walker with this aspect, is that you know they throw a little wobble into the ride, and they they try to uh, have drivers perceive themselves as maybe a little bit of an inexperienced cyclist, and it's amazing the difference that people treat you with. You know, all of a sudden you see someone on the front right of you or front left of you, depending on what country you're driving in. But uh, and they're they're kind of they don't look so confident on their bicycle, and all of a sudden you you give them a wide berth to pass with, and I don't know. It's um, I I just think there's so many different psychological aspects to this, and and what he's throwing into the into the oven is certainly interesting, and I think it gives us something to think about. But um, I just think it's such a wide problem that it's hard to nail down just to one one certain you know phrase or or right. whatnot thought. But um, there's there's so many different things. You know, each person behind the wheel is a different personality, and uh, dealing with that in each different circumstance, I just don't I just don't think there is a one-off easy answer for it, really, myself. But it, it certainly gives you a different aspect to think about things. I think. For me, I'd like to see the research of how close 
cars get to cyclists if the driver of the car is on a handheld cell phone. I think that that, <laughs> I think that, that might be more interesting. You know, here in California, yeah. it, uh, it looks like we're about to have one of those laws that says you cannot be on a handheld cell phone while you're driving. And I, I don't personally, and I don't want to open a can of worms here, but I don't personally buy into the fact that no, no matter whether you're on a handheld phone or you're using a headset, that you're equally as distracted. I don't personally, yeah. I don't personally believe that. But I do I, believe... I agree with you 100%. I do believe that if you're on, on a handheld cell phone, you are not driving as well as you normally would. You've seen it before, especially on your bike. You know, you got somebody on that handheld cell phone. I noticed that they don't turn their heads as much as they normally do when they're driving, when they're on a handheld phone. And if you've got a headset on, you, you know, you're turning your head without a problem. For, for me... That's more of a danger than than almost anything else on the road because I think that people are way distracted when they've got their handheld cell phones. Well, see, I think even more than cell phones are the other things that people are doing while they drive that mm-hmm. was <laughs> happening long before. The other day, um, I found myself at a stoplight screaming out my window at another driver because she was putting makeup on while talking on the phone and she didn't have either hand on the on the wheel and she was going way below the speed limit and so I pulled up behind her and started yelling at her and you know probably not the best reaction but all I'm thinking is if I was on the road riding she probably would have hit me because she wasn't paying attention and so those are the kind of things that again I think more education and giving getting people to realize the the results of their actions in that if, if they're not paying attention, they could take away somebody's life. And I think most people, especially around here where there's not as many cyclists on the road, I think they just don't consider that as a, as a potential consequence that they could take somebody's life. Or I think if they see that more, whether it's a cell phone or it's eating or it's putting on makeup, um, people are going to start realizing that they need to pay attention to what they're doing. And hopefully they'll realize that long before they actually hit somebody. I think that's a good point. Any other comments on this topic, uh, whether it's distracted drivers or helmeted or wigged wigged cyclists? Interbike. Surely there's going to be somebody coming up with a a helmet accessory <laughs> with a, nice a with, wig with a built-in wig. <laughs> come on, come on, Matt. You've got Jiro. Uh, you've got two weeks. <laughs> two point. You know, speaking of that, I think that's a good transition. Um, in about a week. A little over a week, we're going to be, at least some of us are going to be going to the Interbike Expo in Las Vegas. There is the uh, outdoor demo for two days and then three days of the show. And as we were talking before we started recording, Tim and I are, and I'm sure Carlton as well, are just getting bombarded with emails and press releases and snail mail inviting us to to you know, review yeah. products and to visit their booths and go to their parties. It's all about work. We're not going to any parties, right, Tim? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. So feel um, free to, to <laughs> forward those over, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be podcasting from any parties? Yeah. As a matter of fact, from parties. I don't know about that. I don't know how it will sound if we podcast from parties. See, I think uh, I think uh, a local radio station does it every year around New Year's, where they drink throughout the show, and to get people to realize how it, you know, how it can mess them up while they're driving. So we could do something like that where we podcast throughout the show and you kind of hear the effects of the alcohol. Interesting. So so it, it would be, you know, against drinking and cycling. Yeah, that's, right. a, that's a good right. point. Yeah, it's a public service. Or drinking and podcasting. 
<laughs> that could, could be even worse. A good public <laughs> service. I'll have to look into that. But, you know, I, I mentioned it for a couple of reasons. One, our next podcast, because we do the spokesman every two weeks, actually will occur right after the Interbike Show and also right after the Portable Media and Podcasting Expo. So I think that, that, that there's going to be a lot for us to talk about. And also, just a quick plug, I know that Tim is planning on releasing a flurry of podcasts from the from the floor at Interbike. Tim, tell us about that. Uh, right. The idea is to do lots of interviews and lots of product spotlights of things that we find interesting and release them throughout the show. My goal is to do 10 or 15 a day. Um, I've never done this before, so, uh, so we'll see if that actually happens. But I'm already working uh, with the guys that's going to be there with me, and uh, that's the plan is to just get as much exposure and uh, basically my idea is all uh, the people that come to our sites that would love to be there to give them as much information and pictures and everything else as we possibly can while we're at the show. So yeah, at crookedcogpodcast.com we're going to be releasing hopefully 10 to 15 episodes a day. And for me, um, my plan has been to do one show a day uh, so that I'll, I'll be consolidating whatever interviews and, and product reviews that I'll be doing throughout that day and putting it into one show and releasing that each day. And, and I think it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's one of the fantastic things about podcasting is that, if you will, citizen journalists are going to be able to go someplace where, where most cyclists, most uh, consumers can't go, which is to the Interbike Expo because it's an industry-only event. So we're going to be giving you an insider's look at what you're going to be seeing on the store shelves next year, and uh, I, for one, am looking forward to it, and that's something that you should be looking for, both for myself and from Tim, and then we'll be talking about it again on The Spokesman in two weeks. I want to thank all of you for joining us today on The Spokesman, and give you each a chance to just uh, hype your show and let people know where they can contact you. So Tim... Tell us about your show and where people can get in touch with you. My show is the Cricket Cog Podcast, and we released every two weeks, um, and we just kind of talk about some things going on across the Cricket Cog network, along with interviews with uh, people from across the cycling industry. So you can check that out at crookedcogpodcast.com or send me an email at tim at crookedcog.com. Carlton, what about you? Oh, well, I'm at uh, Carlton Reed at mac.com is my email address. Uh, my daily website is uh, bikebiz.com, which is, as it sounds, an industry website on industry news. I won't be going to Interbike this year. It is so sad for me. Um, and my, my podcasts uh, are at the moment hosted by Mac, but eventually we're going to be uh, hosted on something called quickrelease.tv because uh, there's video podcasts on there uh, as well. And uh, it's all at uh, Cycling News and Views. And we've got some really good stuff coming up from a, a famous author who did a Tour de France book. And he's called uh, Graham Fife, and he's going to be doing a tour to Timbuktu in uh, the next week. And that's uh, it's about uh, 45 minutes of really good audio. Excellent. And Larry, what about you? Certainly, you can get a hold of me at podcast at crank.com. It's crank with two Ks. And we are doing a podcast based on news that is submitted by uh, the cycling uh, community to our website at crank.com. And uh, pretty much the podcast uh, now includes uh, interviews from uh, just the general community, you know, uh, both individual cyclists and people who are involved in cycling, uh, from tourers through to uh, 
intersea specialists. So that's about it. And uh, yeah, fire over an email if you want to get in contact. Absolutely. And I'm David Bernstein. I'm from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. That's at www.thefredcast.com. And you can send me an email to thefredcast at gmail.com. I want to thank all of our panelists on the roundtable for joining us this morning, afternoon, and evening. And wish everybody a good couple of weeks. We will be back to you right after the Interbike Expo in just two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for staying subscribed to the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Now get out there and ride. It's it's kind of difficult to say. Um, oh, hell. Sorry, David. Can you cut that out? Uh, yeah, don't worry. Yeah, it's, uh, cutting that out's no problem. But chop okay. it off and put it at the end as well. I'll just embarrass Larry. Well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I did that last thanks. time. I embarrassed myself. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I just got back. the lesson for cyclists or is the lesson for motorists shoot oh, sorry about that <laughs> shall i ask man that? you're gonna have fun editing this <laughs> yes. where you guys are just making work for me my, my wife's gonna hate you guys let me ask the question again. hang on my wife should be answering that hang on okay <laughs> so you need to get that intern right away i know tell me about it anybody volunteering <laughs>